What has become clear to me is that there's not a single person in Russia who goes into public service, into the government, with the intention of doing anything other than stealing. Not one. From the lowest traffic cop right up to the president, everybody goes to make money. They don't go there to do their job. And of course, the higher you get into the hierarchy, the more money you get to steal. And Putin did that like everybody else. So once he arrested the richest oligarch in Russia, all the other oligarchs went to him and said, what do we have to do so we don't get arrested? And he said, real simple, 50%. So he gets 50% of all the oligarchs' money. And then every single deal that ever gets done, every single crime that ever gets committed, he gets 50% of that. If the world has come to learn one thing about President Vladimir Putin of Russia, it is that he bears grudges. One of his longest-standing vendettas concerns this week's guest, Bill Browder. Browder was among the cohort of buccaneering capitalists who went to Russia to seek their fortunes in the post-communist chaos of the 1990s. Browder certainly found his fortune. At one point, his investment fund, Hermitage Capital, was managing over four billion US dollars in assets. Browder and Hermitage eventually attracted the attention and the ire of Russian authorities, vexed by his campaigns of shareholder activism against corruption. In 2009, Browder's Russian lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, died in deeply suspicious circumstances in police custody. Since then, Browder has campaigned to get anti-corruption statutes known as Magnitsky Acts signed into law in more than 30 countries. Browder has written two books telling his story, Red Notice and Freezing Order. I'm Andrew Muller, and I spoke to Bill Browder on The Big Interview. Bill Browder, welcome to The Big Interview. Great to be here. There is obviously a great deal to discuss, but I thought a way of coming into it is a line from your book, Red Notice, where you refer to the Russian way of doing things. And, and to be clear, I think this is a moment at which a Russian business rival, to your slight incomprehension, is engaged in a, a course of action which will screw you, certainly, but will arguably screw him even worse, uh, which you describe this as the Russian way of doing things. And is that what we are witnessing writ large in, in Ukraine over the last year? Absolutely, definitely. There's a famous proverb, which in my book I go on to explain, in which a, um, a fisherman is walking along the stream and he catches a fish and the fish jumps out and the fish is speaking and he says, I'm a magic fish. And the great thing is you've discovered me and so you can have absolutely whatever you want in the world. And the fisherman says, well, you know, should I have like a, a ton of gold, a castle, a, a big ship to sail the high seas? And, and the fish interrupted him, said just one caveat, and that is that whatever I give you, I've got to give two to your neighbor. And so they, they, without, without hesitation, the fisherman says, well, obviously, poke one of my eyes out. <laughs> that being the case, did you understand that before you first went to Russia to do business, or was that something you learned the hard way? No, it was something, none of this weird brutality that we're seeing now. I mean, we all knew of Russia. We, we look at Russia, they, they look like us. They physically look like us. They're Europeans or they look European. And they try to emulate Europeans in different ways. They have Italian restaurants and they, St. Petersburg, they, they build canals like Venice. And, and so it all sort of looks like us. But deep down, there's this brutality, this inhumanity, which is just hard for any of us to in any way understand, but it goes back a thousand years. I mean, they've been doing this 
horrible stuff forever. And there's really been very few little moments in history where they haven't been horrible, where it's been some civilized behavior. And nobody really realizes that until you're faced with it. And and I didn't realize it until I saw it in front of my face in Russia. And I saw it very badly in all sorts of ways, which mm. led to various murders and terrible things happening to people close to me. The world didn't see it until February 24th last year. But when you went to Russia in the 1990s, did you perceive that as a moment at which Russia might be about to slough off you know, everything Russia had become? And, and I do understand what you mean. I can't claim to know Russia nearly as well as you do, but I've done that thing of reading the big, thick books of Russian history, and you do kind of get to a point of turning every page thinking, is this where someone walks in going, just lads, it doesn't have to be like this. But of course, that never actually happened. Happens. But did you think in the 1990s that it was going to change, that something profound was shifting? Well, that, that was the fantasy. So uh, in the 1990s, the Soviet Union broke up. That was the enemy. The Cold War was over. The peace dividend. Boris Yeltsin became the president of Russia. He was supposedly a Democrat, allowing free elections, free speech. The KGB was being dismantled or supposed to be. And it all felt like, wow, you know, this could become a normal European country. And that's when, when I showed up. That's what the fantasy was. That's what the dream was. And for a brief period of time, that was kind of the trajectory that they were on. It just went horribly off the rails. Did you see Russia at that point as purely a business and financial opportunity? Or, or did you have, had you grown up with some particular fascination about the Soviet Union? And what I'm basically doing here is trying to elegantly shoehorn in the extraordinary figure of your grandfather, Earl Browder, who I desperately hope you're going to write one of your books about one day. He was the leader of the Communist Party of the United States. He was a repeat guest at various American penitentiaries, twice a presidential candidate, and Probably, I think I'm right in saying, actually a Soviet spy. All correct. So my grandfather, <laughs> Earl Browder, started out as a labor union organizer from Wichita, Kansas. And he was so good at organizing the union that he was spotted by the communists. And they said, if you like labor unionism, you're going to love communism. <laughs> Why don't you come to check it out? And so he, he moves to Moscow in 1927. He meets a Russian girl who becomes my grandmother. They get married. My father is born in Moscow. One of my uncles is born there. And then five years after they arrive, they return to America, and he becomes the leader of the American Communist Party. He runs for president in 1936 and 1940 against Roosevelt. He was the very first American presidential candidate who had an African-American running mate, his vice president. Of course, he lost profoundly, but <laughs> um, he was then arrested by Roosevelt in a highly politically motivated arrest, put in jail kept in jail until there were uprisings across the inner cities of America. Again, African-Americans were coming to his defense, free Earl Browder, and Mayor LaGuardia called up Roosevelt and said, you've got to get the, let this guy out of jail. They pardoned him in 42. He was then expelled from the Communist Party in 1945 for being too much of a capitalist. <laughs> and then he, of course, faced just unbelievable prejudice, hardship, and persecution during the McCarthy era in the 1950s. And and so this is my family legacy. I was born in 1964. When I was going through my teenage rebellion, you know, at the age of whatever, 15 or so, I decided to put on a suit and tie and become a capitalist. <laughs> there was nothing I could do that would upset my family more than that. And so, so I became a capitalist. The Berlin Wall came down in 89. And that's when I set out 
to find my fortune in Eastern Europe. I thought if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America and the Berlin Wall has come down, I'm going to try to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. But did you arrive in Russia to found Hermitage Capital thinking of yourself in some way Russian and thinking that you had an advantage in that respect? No, not at all. I didn't speak the language. I was just there in this weird sort of convoluted rebellion from my family. I didn't go there because of the business opportunities per se. I went there because I thought it was cool that I was in Russia as a capitalist and my grandfather was in Russia, in America as a communist. But the business opportunities were unbelievable at the time. They, mm. they, they had basically, Yeltsin, who was the president, had made this big decision. He said that in order to go from communism to capitalism, we can't just declare ourselves capitalists. We've got to make everybody owners of property. And so the state then transferred all property from the state's hands to private hands through something called the Mass Privatization Program. And of course, it didn't work out the way it was designed. 22 individuals, 22 oligarchs ended up owning a big chunk of it. But the little crumbs that were falling off the table became the Russian stock market. And I, I was able to invest in those little crumbs. And those crumbs traded at a 99.7% discount to comparable companies in the West. And so it turned out that there was an enormous business opportunity to be taken advantage of. But that's not what motivated me to go there. It was this strange family dynamic that got me there. Beyond that, though, what was the appeal of being a capitalist to you? Were you one of those people, and I have met both, who wanted the big house and the fancy cars and the yachts and all the stuff that money can buy? Or were you one of those people who, who regarded the money and the profits as pretty much just a way of keeping score, measuring how well you were doing versus your competitors? It was totally a scorekeeping exercise. And, and in fact, for almost my entire adult life, I've lived, you know, a pretty modest, I mean, some people might not say modest at this point, but a pretty modest life, certainly compared to what I could have been living, because I, I never have bought any sports cars, never had any yachts, never had a private plane, never had any of that stuff. So my grandfather was the communist. My father became a mathematician and a very famous mathematician. And so for me, the idea of being an investor was trying to figure stuff out before other people figured it out. If you did, you had a higher return and that was sort of validating you as being smarter than the next guy. And that's what kind of made it attractive for me. We'll move along to the bit shortly where the Russian dream goes sour for you. But was there a point against the background of what you've described, which is almost certainly the greatest theft in human history? This is the, the resources of a massive country being stolen, as you said, by a very small number of individuals. Did you ever find yourself being a bit uneasy about the idea that you were garnering colossal profits in a time and at a place where a lot of the people around you, a lot of the just ordinary Russians, were losing absolutely everything. Well, so the, the thing that made me really upset was these oligarchs who, so 22 individuals mm. stole more than 40% of the country from the Russian people. And those individuals then used their power and their money to then subvert the parliament and subvert the government so they didn't pay any taxes, that they could arrest all their business competitors, they could make life miserable. You couldn't be a human being and not be just completely infuriated by this huge disparity between these 22 individuals and the Russian people. And, and to watch, you know, the, the life expectancy of a Russian man was like 57 years old. I'd be dead by now if I'd been in, in Russia. Why was the life expectancy so low? Because there was no medicine in the hospitals. Life was just unhealthy in every different, in different way. Why was it unhealthy? Because there's just nothing there to 
the, all the resources had been put into Eaton Square and, and yachts and private jets of these oligarchs. And so I, and, and I can tell you every single other person who, who was there watched these oligarchs and said, this is just horrible. This is disgusting. These people are monsters. That, by the way, was the rise of Putin. Putin mm. came in and he, he responded to that. Why should 22 unelected people, sort of self-declared oligarchs who stole everything, be the ones to control the country? His pitch to the Russian people, which really appealed to me at the time and everybody else at the time, was he was going to restore the order of the state and take away the power from these people. And that was going to be the moment that Russia went from a destitute country to a middle-income European country. Do you think at any point that you were perhaps, I don't know, naive might be the word, but basically were you surprised when the Russian state came for you? Well, I, I was completely wrong about Putin. So when Putin first came to power, I cheered. I, I was like happy. that, that, that he, I mean, he he's not a charismatic guy. He's short and he doesn't speak well, but he kind of appeared like a technocrat. And compared to Yeltsin, who was drunk and who was corrupt and all this kind of stuff, it was just like a breath of fresh air. He comes in, and for the first, I don't know, three years or so, he's like doing stuff, really boring type stuff. I could describe the reforms he was doing, and, and your eyes would glaze over because it was nothing interesting. But it was all very boring and sort of technocratic and, and seemingly good. And I was pretty happy about that. And I was particularly happy when he started going after the oligarchs. And he went after the biggest oligarch in the country, a guy named Mikhail Hordakovsky, who was the owner of an oil company called Yukos, the richest man in the country. He arrested him, put him on trial, and allowed the television cameras to film the richest man in Russia on trial. I watched that and I thought, great, you know, one oligarch down, 21 to go. Mm. <laughs> but then the next oligarch, he didn't arrest, and that was Roman Abramovich, the famous Roman Abramovich, the guy who um, bought Chelsea. And Abramovich, who did nothing different than Hordakovsky, they were birds of a feather. They were, you know, grabbing oil companies from the state and not paying their taxes and all this kind of stuff. Abramovich didn't get arrested and he didn't have his oil company taken away. He got paid $13 billion for his oil company from the state-owned company Gazprom. And then he was appointed the governor of a region of Russia called Chukotka. And it's like, well, wait a second, if Putin is supposed to be cleaning out the oligarchs, why did he destroy one, which, which would have been good if they went after all 22, and then make the next one rich? And that's the moment that it started to look like Putin is not the guy who is going to make it all better for the Russian people. I mean, that being the case, where did you get to on what Putin's underlying motivations always were? Did something change? Because it's a point you've made, and it's a point that has been made ad infinitum about Russia by Russians and about people who visited Russia. And I'm thinking of the phrase of the late great P.J. O'Rourke, that there's just no alibi for the place. And it's it, it's true. It is this colossal country with you know, all the natural resources you could possibly want, an immensely sort of educated and ambitious population, a glorious cultural heritage. There is nothing stopping it, you would think, under the right leadership from becoming a, a great nation by any measure. And what you've described is Putin going seemingly from enacting the probably quite quotidian and tedious reforms that would enable that to becoming this extraordinary, acquisitive, monumentally wealthy and entirely corrupt monster. That was my big misconception. I think everybody's misconception was, is so Putin is no different than anybody in Russia. And, and what has become clear to me is that there's not a single person in Russia who goes into public service, into the government, with the intention of doing anything other than stealing. Not so, one. 
Not one. From the lowest traffic cop right up to the president, everybody goes to make money. They don't go there to do their job. And of course, the higher you get into the hierarchy, the more money you get to steal. And Putin did that like everybody else. And by the way, so once he arrested the richest oligarch in Russia, all the other oligarchs went to him and said, what do we have to do so we don't get arrested? And he said, real simple, 50%. This was not for the government or for the presidential administration. It's for Vladimir Putin. So he gets 50% of all, all the oligarchs' money. And then every single deal that ever gets done, every single crime that ever gets committed, he gets 50% of that. Did you get the sense at any point that some sort of deal of that nature was being proposed to you, whether explicitly or implicitly? No. So there's two ways they do it. They either ask you to do 50% or they take 100%. <laughs> and I wasn't, I'm not the kind of person who would like, you know, become business partners with the mafia. And they knew that from a very early on. And so the best way to deal with a guy like me is just to, um, in my case, they expelled me from the country. They raided my offices. They seized all of my company's documents. And then they orchestrated a massive fraud where they stole $230 million of taxes that I paid to the Russian government. They wanted to steal all of my money too, but they, I had gotten my money out before that. That's how they deal with people they can't do business with is they just destroy them. And, and since then, I had a lawyer who discovered this. His name was Sergei Magnitsky. Sergei had discovered the $230 million theft. He exposed it. And in retaliation, he was arrested uh, he was tortured for 358 days, and he was killed in Russian police custody by eight riot guards with rubber batons. Uh, this was 13 years ago. They killed him. He was 37 years old. After they killed him, they then started chasing me all around the world with eight Interpol arrest warrants, extradition requests, lawsuits, death threats, kidnapping threats, all sorts of stuff against me. And so there's how they deal with their business partners, which is 50%, and how they deal with their enemies or their adversaries, which is 100%. How difficult or otherwise is it to tune all that stuff out? I mean, Vladimir Putin, as he has demonstrated repeatedly, is somebody who bears grudges and will pursue them literally to the ends of the earth, often by quite bizarre and imaginative means. He definitely knows who you are. He's mentioned you by name once or twice. I don't expect you to go into detail, but how do you live with that? Do you actually have to take particular precautions in order to live? every day. There's this expression, they, don't, they only have to be lucky once. Mm. I've got to be lucky every day. And you don't just get lucky every day. You have to be very dutiful about security protection. And you've got to vet every single person, every stranger you meet with. You don't go to meet with people you don't know. You don't travel to the same places over and over again. There's, there's a lot of different things you have to do to make sure that they don't get you. And, and I have to do those. And I have to continue to do those. Even with the war in Ukraine, where he has, he's got a you know, a thousand times more enemies than he had when it was just me and a few other people, I still have to worry in the same way as Salman Rushdie, 33 years after the uh, Iranians issued the fatwa, he was stabbed and nearly killed. In this case, this is a Putin fatwa, and he's not disappearing, and it doesn't disappear. There's one particular moment I did want to ask about, and I, I would be astounded if, if, it's, if it's possible to actually completely, precisely articulate what that must have felt like. And I'm referring to the Helsinki summit between Vladimir Putin and then US President Donald Trump, in which you would have sat there and watched two of the world's most powerful people apparently affably discussing the prospect of the United States giving you up to the tender mercies of Russian justice in order to be 
allowed to interrogate some GRU officers, which had been named in the Mueller report. Is there a way you can describe what that feels like when the actual president of the United States is apparently mulling over in public the thought of just giving you up to Russia? Sheer terror. So it's one thing for Putin to ask for me to be handed over. And I should point out that Putin has been asking for me to be handed over in lots of different ways since the Magnitsky Act was passed. The Magnitsky Act is legislation named after my murdered lawyer, which freezes Russian assets of human rights violators and kleptocrats. So Putin has hated me since about 2012 and has been publicly declaring his hate for me. And I should point out that Putin almost never mentions the names of his enemies. It's a Mm. mafia trait. You don't ever, you know, your enemies don't have names. They're not people. You just kill them. And so, for example, you would probably never see him mentioning the name Alexei Navalny, who's another one of his big enemies, the guy who's in jail after they tried to kill him with Novichok, an opposition activist. So Putin has been mentioning my name unusually because he doesn't mention people's names since 2012. The incident you're talking about is in 2018. So for six years, he would regularly mention my name. And when he does, you can actually see the hatred. I mean, you can see it on his forehead. He furrows his, even his Botox forehead. You get these wrinkles (laughs) on his forehead. And so he's really angry. And so it didn't surprise me to hear him asking Trump to hand me over because I was really, truly number one on his list. But what did surprise me and truly upset me was Trump, President Trump, the at the time, the most powerful man in the free world, smiling and saying, I think that's a brilliant idea and effectively agreeing to it. And there was a four-day period between the time that Putin asked and at the same moment Trump agreed and the U.S. Congress, the U.S. Senate, voting 98 to zero not to hand me over before I I kind of could feel calm again. But for that four days, and I was in America at the time, and I, I just pictured a a bunch of black SUVs approaching my house and a bunch of guys from the Department of Homeland Security, you know, putting a bag over my head and putting me onto some rendition flight back to Moscow. And and it was horrible because I, I always felt like Russia is a totally uncivilized country where terrible things happen, but America is a, a, a safe country, a rule of law country. And all of a sudden I felt like unsafe in America and not unsafe from the criminals, unsafe from the government. And that's horrible. The Magnitsky Act you refer to has now been echoed in quite a lot of jurisdictions around the world. 33-ish, I think we're up to now. We're now up to 35 countries that have Magnitsky Acts, which is pretty remarkable and something that really upsets Putin. And I should point out that the uh, Magnitsky Act doesn't just apply to evil Russians. It applies to Chinese, Iranians, Saudis, all sorts of other bad actors. It's a piece of legislation which says that if you do terrible things, if you commit terrible murders and tortures, or if you steal huge amounts of money from your people, then your money, your assets will be frozen and your visas will be canceled around the world. But going back to what we've seen Russia do in Ukraine over the last year, which, as you know, was far from the first time we had seen Vladimir Putin's Russia act aggressively or impetuously, the Magnitsky Act now seem like Well, an an idea ahead of its time, as the world has piled in with sanctions on Russia in the last year and a bit. And I know that it's never easy to precisely answer the parallel universe kind of question. But if things like the Magnitsky Act, if sanctions as stringent as have been applied to Russia in the last year and a bit had been applied after Georgia in 2008, after Ukraine won in 2014, after the Scripple poisoning or after whatever you're having yourself, does that affect Putin? 
Putin's calculus? Does he think differently about whether he wants to make a grab for the entirety of Ukraine? Absolutely, for sure. So Putin is, is a rational actor. He's not some kind of uh, he may be crazy in, in the fact that he's a psychopath and he's he can kill people without remorse, but he's also just a, uh, a rational actor when it comes to risk and reward. He chose to go into Ukraine because he felt that there was a reward for him. And, and the reward is very simple, that starting a war generally gets everyone rallying around the commander in chief. And, and he was worried about his his hold on the Russian people and starting a war generally helps that. So that's the reward. And he said to himself, there's very little risk of doing this because I've done all this kind of stuff before and there's never been any problem. And as you mentioned, he went into Georgia. Were there crippling sanctions? No. Uh, he took Crimea. We somehow characterize that as a, we, we called the people who did that Russian-backed separatists. And, and therefore, it wasn't a Russian invasion. It was just some kind of civil war, if you, if you like. And there, therefore, we don't want to get involved in, in no crippling sanctions. They did Salisbury poisonings and shooting down of MH17 and hacking elections and all this kind of stuff. There's never been any sanctions. And so Putin says, OK, the West, these people are so narrow minded. They're so profit motivated. They're not going to touch me if I go into Ukraine. So there's only reward and no risk. And I, I'm, I'm certain that if we had come up with crippling sanctions after Crimea or after any of these incidents, Putin probably would have not done this thing in, in on February 24th last year of invading Ukraine because as he's now experiencing, it's a really bad, he's suffering. And um, generally, these bullies don't like to suffer. I only wish that as I was banging the drum about being tougher on Russia with the Magnitsky Act and with other things, that people had listened. But I was really isolated and marginalized in, in my sort of strident view on Russia for many years. The sanctions imposed on Russia since last February 24th are obviously much more stringent than what had been in place before. But are they crippling, as you described them? And if they are, why do they not appear to have entirely crippled Russia yet? Well, they're crippling for sure. So coming back to the oligarchs, the oligarchs control most of the economic assets of the country, and, and 40 of the top 118 oligarchs are sanctioned, which means that they can't set up bank accounts, they can't do business, their assets are frozen. It's all pretty pretty horrible for them. So we've we've done that. We've frozen $350 billion of the $650 billion of Russia's central bank reserve, so they can't draw on that. We've, we've made life miserable, so they can't import chips and other technology, so they, they can't make cars properly, they can't make tanks properly, they can't make a lot of stuff properly. More than 1,000 Western businesses have pulled out of Russia. A million able, high-functioning employees, Russian citizens, have left the country. It's a disaster there. Now, to your question, why have they not stopped the war? Well, first of all, Putin is never going to stop this war. Putin, from his perspective, any sign of weakness, he'll lose power. If he loses power, basically he's finished. The, he's, the retirement options are not attractive. There's no, there's no Putin presidential library uh, to retire to. And so he's never going to back down. But more, more importantly, if we look at sanctions, the only purpose of sanctions at this point is not as a deterrent. It's not going to change his mind. It's as a punishment. And the punishment that we're trying to impose on him is to starve him of the financial resources so he just can't do this war. He just doesn't have the money. And the problem with that is that, yes, we have hit him hard. The economy is suffering. People are suffering. The money that was supposed to be available is not available. But there's one thing that keeps on happening every day, which is that the West and the East continue to buy Russian oil and gas. 
And as they buy Russian oil and gas, he gets between $500 million and a billion dollars every day. And that money that he's getting, he's using to kill Ukrainians. And so if you look at the, the situation, on one hand, we, the collective West, are giving him this money to basically fund his war. And on the other hand, we're giving the Ukrainians money to fight back. The easier answer would be a total oil and gas embargo on Russia, which is possible. People say, well, what about the Indians? What about the Chinese? They're buying this stuff. Well, you know what? If we were serious about this and we said, you know, we will impose absolute devastating sanctions on any ship that sails with oil, on any insurance company that insures those ships, on any, anybody we know to be purchasing oil, it would dry up. We could, but we just don't have the appetite to do that. And as a result, we end up with Putin continuing to have money to fight this war, and he will continue to fight this war until the last soldier, he will draft the entire male population of Russia if that's what it takes. I mean, granted that the, the proximate concern is defeating Russia in the short term in Ukraine and ensuring Ukraine's survival and defeating Putin's ambitions. But if you think back to the 90s, is there a wider concern that we might just set the cycle running again in that th there, was a, there was a moment there where Russia was obviously going to transform, the transformation obviously went somewhat askew. If we end up bankrupting and looting Russia all over again, don't we end up going round again a couple of decades down the track with a regime which may actually, Russian history being Russian history, be worse than Putin's? This is what Putin wants you to believe. So he, he wants you to believe that there's something worse than him. Putin is, he's just gearing up right now, by the way. He's, he's just as bad as Hitler or Stalin. This is a guy who has threatened nuclear war with the West. He's taken over a number of neighboring countries. He's a criminal of all criminals. There's now 175,000 dead Russian soldiers. That's something like 12 times the number of sold, dead Soviet soldiers who died in Afghanistan mm. in one year. This is a guy who doesn't care about anything or anybody, to say that there's going to be someone worse than him, you know, we're just negotiating with ourselves. The man needs to be defeated. He needs to be defeated soundly and completely. And to somehow say that we're responsible for the rise of Putin, the Russians are responsible for the rise of Putin. It's not like we're psychoanalysts and we have to, like, pat them on the back and say, oh, we respect you. Every country operates in its own national interests, and it does so in a way that has, you know, we can't control them, they can't control us. And, and what we should have done is created proper constraints and boundaries around Russia and around Putin. But we, we enabled his behavior. We almost, you know, the Germans built a, a pipeline, the Nord Stream mm -hmm. 2 pipeline. They built this pipeline with Russia with one specific aim, which is Russia's aim, which was to bypass Ukraine. The Germans were effectively participating with Russia and fighting an economic war with Ukraine to give Putin then the opportunity to invade Ukraine because they wouldn't have the leverage over the gas. That was the whole purpose of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And so we're guilty of doing stuff to help Putin get to, to be such a monstrous man. But, but in terms of, you know, do we need to be like a little bit nicer to Russia right now because we don't want them to be terrible in the future? I, I don't buy that for a split second. Bill Browder, thank you for joining us. Bill Browder, thank you for joining me on The Big Interview on Monocle Radio. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. It was produced by Emma Searle and edited by Emily Sands. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.